you hear that? It's the sound of rebellion. Back talking to teachers, drag racing, and worst of all, rock and roll music. Today we talk about the American teenager and their portrayal in films starting in the early 50s and all the way up to today. What started off as greasers with leather jackets turned into a national panic every time the term juvenile delinquent was uttered and the movies that capitalized on it. And once that was gone, where the teensploitation genre went from there. So join us for some good old-fashioned sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and rape, and murder, and STDs, and switchblades, and werewolves, and sexy dancing, and the potential murder of Natalie Wood, and pedophiles that kill you in your dreams, and teen lesbian murders, and, well, you get the point. All the things teenagers love to do but hate the consequences of in today's episode on teensploitation. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from amputation, masturbation, menstruation, and castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? Good. Where you been? Oh, you know, everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no shit. I have quite a life, as as I'm sure you know. Yes, I'm quite aware of that. When we last recorded, I had already moved to California. I still live in California. As I always say to people, I love California, and I like LA just fine. <laughs> so I woke up one day, and I was just like, I am so sick of looking at this fucking apartment. I'm so (laughs) sick of looking at this fucking town. And I packed up all my stuff, put it in storage, and I went on the road for six months. Yep. It was just me and my little gay dog, and we drove up and down the coast of California, came to the East Coast. I went to Mexico. I went to Canada. And we just traveled. I worked the whole time, yeah. uh, had my laptop. It was still during pandemic. So I am on Zoom all day long for work. And I would pull up that camera in the morning and say, good morning. And everybody would be like, where are you today? And a lot of times it was like, I'm not quite sure. I'd have to look around myself and uh, figure out where I was working from. But it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah. He's not joking. He was everywhere uh, living that vagabond lifestyle for a little while. But now I finally got you like settled down just long enough so we could finish up season seven. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little more settled too. I do actually have an apartment now, everyone. I landed in West Hollywood and I actually landed just a couple of blocks away from where Salminio was killed, <laughs> which we're going to talk about today. Excellent. That sounds great. And so what have you been up to? So it's fascinating. Um, not shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> not, not a fucking shit. thing. Yeah. Haven't yeah. done a damn thing. I uh, got promoted at work, which has really kept me busy and that's it. Yeah. So it's amazing how once you get busy at work, a year and a half goes by, which I think is roughly the time frame that's gone by since we've put any of these out. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. So well, 
I uh, I like doing it. I, I really do. It's just, it's one of those things obviously takes time. Yep. And, but as I'm like starting, I'm like, stupid, I hate Tom, idiot, stupid Tom. It's all your fault at first. <laughs> oh, I, no, I know, I know. You blame me for all of this. Yeah, that's And fair. then once I start to figure out what my story is, I'm like, I'm brilliant. I am so smart. <laughs> like, I am so smart. It's a good thing Tom knows me because he knows someone that's very smart. Yes. Can, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm the lucky one here. Yeah. So this episode, like most of our episodes, started with a thing and turned into a completely different thing and, once I yep. did all the research. So, it's, but I'm just so smart that, you know, <laughs> yes. I figured it out. You did. You did. No you help from you. The code. Yeah. No, Mm-mm. no, no that was, this was all you. Okay. So, first things first, this topic is a lot bigger than I thought it was going okay. into it. I originally just thought it was going to be about the 1950s teenager. And there was like this teenager danger panic back then. It was kind of similar to satanic panic, but it was was basically like that teenagers were going to I guess like stab everybody in the world with switchblades and their greasy hair was going to get all over everything and they were everything was going to go to shit sounds plausible but that kind of only lasted for about five or six years but once I got in there I started to realize that like this thing kind of affected the way that movies were made all the way up to today because teenagers are a thing so there's always going to be teenagers in film there's always going to be movies made for teenagers and kind of those two things crashing together is like where this episode really is is taking us today. Okay, cool. So we're starting in the early 50s here because as you'll remember from my Beach Party Massacre episode, there really wasn't such a thing as a teenager until a few years after World War II. Mm-hmm. So instead of copying and pasting that into this episode, I actually did some additional research. I read an article from the Saturday Evening Post, which I didn't even know still existed, and it was called A Brief History of the Teenager. And so I want to tell you a few things that created the teenager. Okay, cool. So the first thing was compulsory education, which sounds weird, but remember that in the 1900s, kids didn't really like have to go to school, and a lot of them stayed at home. The boys worked on farms and in factories alongside their fathers, and the girls stayed home and cooked and cleaned. As the country moved away from this like not amazing system, and also moved into urban areas, kids went to schools, they started meeting each other, they formed friendships and relationships away from their families, and so they they started becoming like a group of people as opposed to individual kids that lived many, many miles away from other kids like them. Gotcha. The second thing that happened was the invention of the car. If any type of friendship or relationship of the 1900s was going to happen, it had to happen in the home in front of someone's parents, and the car took all that away. In the 50s, many families could afford two cars while only one parent was working, and so the thought of letting a teen borrow a car to drive to his or her job, go out on a date, or run some errands for the family seemed as normal as, you know, making them work in a factory, so why not? But with this new idea of freedom also came an idea of rebellion, and as teens would meet in large groups in their cars that a drive-in, soda shop, or as we'll talk about soon, drag race... <laughs> Their behavior started to differ wildly from their parents' generation and also their younger brothers and sisters. Thus, the teenage mentality started to scare people because they didn't understand it because they had never experienced it. Of course, younger kids had not been a teenager and older people had not been a teenager either because immediately once you are old enough to walk, you have to start working and then you get married when you're like nine. So, yeah. yeah. 
And finally, the post-war economic boom, and of course the baby boom. So rising wages and unions meant that parents had more money and teenagers could also work, not in fields and factories, but as soda jerks and car mechanics and waitresses. People also had fewer children because in the new economic climate, you didn't have to have a million children to work on the farm. And that meant that parents had more money and teenagers had more money. And so industries catered to teenagers with things like fast food, poodle skirts, and of course, the entertainment industry, TV, music, and for today's purposes, movies. Back in the 40s and early 50s, going to the movies was a family event. Everyone watched the same movies. The collapse of the studio system in 1948 and the rise of TV meant that the universal days where everyone watched the same thing, namely every movie was family friendly, was over. The mid-50s meant that the movies had to cater to more individual demographics or everyone would just stay at home and watch TV. So, of course, the studio solutions were either make them big, so big, giant, huge spectacle movies in Cinemarama, or make them provocative. The first option, making them big, came at the expense of the second option. Up until then, the provocative option was often what we called the B-movie. B-movies have a different connotation now. Back in the 40s and early 50s, the B-movie was an important part of the studio system. An A-picture, like a big Cecil B. DeMille film, for example, would be accompanied by a much smaller B-movie on a double bill. This guaranteed that there were still movies to watch in between giant budget spectacular blockbuster films, but B-movies went to shit after TV deemed them useless. So now all of a sudden there's a new teenage demographic with freedom, cars, and money to go to the movies, but no movies for them. That's a lot of history. And there's just a little bit more. So this extended well beyond movies. In 1954, a year before the first movie we're going to talk about today, the most popular music was from the artists Perry Como, Rosemary Clooney, Frank Sinatra, and Doris Day. So even if there was a black artist on the charts like Nat King Cole, pop music was what we would barely even call easy listening at this point. (laughs) So when rock and roll started to show up in the form of songs like Shake, Rattle, and Roll, remember that one? Mm -hmm. It was the teenager that embraced it. Never mind that these groups tended to be all white males in their mid-30s dressed in suits. It was a different sound that parents were unfamiliar with and teenagers could dance to. So remember, that Elvis wouldn't hit for another couple of years, and we'll talk about that soon. Gotcha. But this teenage rebellion, combined with rock and roll, scared the shit out of a lot of people. <laughs> Even J. Edgar Hoover ranked, in quotes, the juvenile jungle up there with communism as a threat to American freedom. <laughs> The Massachusetts Public Health Department said rock and roll was responsible for increases in venereal diseases and juvenile delinquency. I mean, they're not really wrong. I know, it's it's (laughs) kind of true. And Variety even said, rock and roll, the most explosive showbiz phenomenon of the decade, may be getting too hot to handle. While its money-making potential has made it all but irresistible, its Svengali grip on the teenagers has produced a staggering wave of juvenile violence and mayhem. Goodness. It's a quote, yeah. Wow. That's impressive. So by the time 1955 rolled around, the stage was set for our first film of today, and it combined rock and roll music and the teenage delinquency panic all together. Oh, great. But surprisingly, Hollywood got there first. That film was MGM's Blackboard Jungle in 1955, and it was actually Sidney Poitier's first film. Have you heard of this one? I mean, I've heard of the movie. I've never seen it. Yeah. I could tell you the rough plot, but the main thing this movie is about is Glenn Ford as a teacher in an inner city interracial school, and the kids are bad. That's <laughs> the plot. 
kids are bad. They backtalk and call each other racial slurs and they have switchblades and stuff. It's it's pretty much teenage melodrama, but this is a time where Westerns and the Honeymooners ruled TV, and the most popular non-adult shows were The Little Rascals, The Mickey Mouse Club, and Captain Kangaroo. So even a movie where teenagers were actually recognized and then perceived as dangerous was pretty major. Yeah. Blackboard Jungle deals with an explosive subject, the teenage terror in the schools. It is the frankest, the toughest, the most realistic film since On the Waterfront. It is fiction, but fiction torn from big city modern savagery. It packs a brass knuckle punch in its startling revelation of those teenage savages who turned big city schools into a clawing jungle. Blackboard Jungle will be the talk of this town. Don't miss it. The movie got pretty decent reviews, but Richard L. Coe of the Washington Post slammed the film and said, quote, Yes, the papers regularly have news about shocking conditions in the schools. Vandalism certainly is more rampant than it was a few years ago. Sex crimes and thuggery do occur. Even murder is not beyond our young. But to pile these things and more into a few months within one classroom surely does not show courage on the part of the movie makers. This approach simply is one more dodge at making a box office buck to anyone with his eyes open so he actually thought it was an exploitation film and so did a lot of other conservative critics gotcha well they were endorsing thuggery thuggery yes Uh but the biggest thing about this movie the thing that is most remembered is the opening credits were to the song rock around the clock by bill haley and the comets you know Mm -hmm. this one yeah one two two three three, four o'clock rock five six seven o'clock eight o'clock rock nine ten eleven o'clock twelve o'clock rock we're gonna rock around Rock Around the Clock is widely considered to be the song that more than any other brought rock and roll into mainstream culture around the world. And in the context of Blackboard Jungle, it became synonymous with juvenile delinquency, which is kind of funny considering Rock Around the Clock seems like the most norm core song in history. Well, and also roughly 20 years later, it became the theme song for one of the most family friendly shows ever. Happy Days. Yes. But at this time, rock and roll was to teenage delinquency what Michelle remembers was to satanic panic. (laughs) Nice callback. Thank you. And then shortly after, also in 1955, Warner Brothers' Rebel Without a Cause came out and scared the shit out of everybody with a new type of teenage threat, drag racing. Nice. So rough plot, James Dean plays a hot-as-shit emotional teenager that meets hot-as-shit emotional love interest Natalie Wood and a hot-as-shit Sal Mineo, a younger, more fucked-up teenager who's pretty gay for James Dean. Natalie Wood's mean boyfriend slashes James Dean's tires, and then they drag race at the top of a cliff. This is basically where two drivers and two separate cars drive towards a cliff in Malibu, and whoever jumps out of the car first is the loser. Then both cars go off the cliff. Unfortunately, Natalie Wood's boyfriend gets his jacket stuck on the door handle and can't get the door open, and he goes over the cliff and the car explodes. So then James Dean and Natalie Wood are in love, and then Salminio gets all wrapped up in the dead boyfriend's gang and ends up killing one of them, and then he gets gunned down by the police and everyone else lives happily ever after, kind of. Wow. The reviews were good, it got nominated for some Oscars, and it made all three of them huge stars. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into? It's no place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing.
thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again. No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. <laughs> this is all going too fast you for me, You better give son. me something. You better give me something fast. Jimmy, you're very young. A foolish decision now could wreck your whole life. In ten years, you'll never know this even happened. Dad, answer her. Stand up! You want to kill your own father? James Dean was basically the first American teenager, of course, until he died, only a few weeks after Rebel Without a Cause was released, making the movie even more popular. Yeah. Fun fact, all three of them met with untimely deaths. Natalie Wood was drowned under mysterious circumstances after a bender on a small yacht with her husband, Robert Wagner, and Christopher Walken. Gay Salminio, who was actually gay in real life, got stabbed in West Hollywood, two blocks from my apartment. Damn. After a random robbery gone wrong, he had like $10 on him. Holy shit. Remember your first trip to L.A.? We actually went to the Griffith Observatory where James Dean's tires got slashed. That's true. Right. There's also a sculpture of James Dean's head at the Griffith Observatory, but I didn't find it very appealing. It's not a good likeness it's a little scary looking yeah um i'm glad it's there but i don't didn't love it (laughs) no it's not that great all right so now you've got two films that portray the modern teenager in two different but pretty complex ways you've got the dangerous urban delinquent with his rock and roll and his switchblades and you've got the mixed up confused teenager with nothing better to do than drag race to win a girl Mm -hmm. and that's where your first teen exploitation films start so columbia pictures started with two films the first being teenage crime wave Rough plot, a teenage girl named Jane witnesses a robbery and then gets falsely accused and convicted of being an accessory to it and goes to juvie. While being transferred, her cellmate's boyfriend springs them both and kills a deputy in the process. They hide out in a farmhouse and terrorize the family while waiting for their friend Al to arrive with money to help get him out of town. They kill a neighbor and then are cornered at the Griffith Observatory, yet again, Oh, nice! where the cellmate is fatally shot by the police. Before she dies, she confesses to the police that Jane is innocent. So beyond the blatant ripoffs of Rebel Without a Cause, you've basically got a cautionary tale of not just being a teenage delinquent, but even being associated or standing near a teenage delinquent is very dangerous. Clearly, clearly is. Well, it's because of thuggery. Yes, it's all the thuggery that's happening. (laughs) Columbia then followed that up with a completely different type of film, Rock Around the Clock from 1956. If the teenage crime wave was a blatant ripoff of Rebel Without a Cause, then here was their opportunity to rip off not only the opening credits of Blackboard Jungle, but they even got Bill Haley and his Comets to star in the movie, and oh, it's also a musical. So the plot, I'm obviously simplifying, is a whitewashingly racist origin story of how rock and roll was invented, and spoiler, white people invented it. (laughs) And it made a fortune on a small budget. So now you have two mainstream teenage films and two knockoffs of those, and that's how teenagers were introduced to the film world. So real quick, teen exploitation, but really all exploitation films in the 50s, had three unique elements. Controversial subject matter, that's mm-hmm. number one. Second thing is budget. Exploitation films are quicker than studio films, and they're a lot cheaper, too. Right. And third, the teenage audience who don't give a shit about big budgets and high production values and big stars, they go to the movies to see something different, make out, get away from their parents, and be with their friends. They're not necessarily looking for quality entertainment. <laughs> Fair. And while Columbia was slumming with knockoffs of MGM and Warner Brother films for a short time, another exploitation studio was right around the corner. Enter American International Pictures. I was waiting for you to get to this. (laughs) 
WIP was a studio that basically started in 1955 to fill the void of the B picture and is probably the reason why B movies have the connotation as really shitty knockoff movies, which is exactly what AIP distributed. Mm -hmm. Their first 15 movies, all released in little over a year, were a mix of monster, sci-fi, and westerns and really failed to make any money. Obviously, Roger Corman was a big part of this, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously where he got his start. AIP reworked their strategy and focused specifically on the teen market after Blackboard Jungle and Rebel Without a Cause were huge hits. They developed a really smart marketing strategy called the Peter Pan Syndrome. Have you heard of this? I think so, but go go for it. Yeah. So A, a younger child will watch anything an older child will watch. B, an older child will not watch anything a younger child will watch. So they're not going to watch kids, kids' movies or kids' things. It's for kids. C, a girl will watch anything a boy will watch, but a boy will not watch anything a girl will watch. Therefore, to catch your greatest audience, you zero in on the 19-year-old male. Right. Then they started doing focus groups by putting titles, stars, and movie posters with no actual scripts in front of teenagers, and they let them decide what they wanted to see. And then they made the movie around that. Oh, wow. This was all in 1956, which was also the year that Elvis hit the mainstream, too. His biggest three hits that year were Heartbreak Hotel, Don't Be Cruel, and Jailhouse Rock. So all of this smashed together led them to their first big hit in 1956 called Shake, Rattle, and Rock! Exclamation <laughs> point. So ridiculous. The plot directly copied and pasted from Wiki is a disc jockey and a hipster battle adults trying to ban rock and roll in a small town. That's it. That's the <laughs> plot. Also, if you change like three words of that, you have Footloose. Yeah, I was going to say, that's exactly the same bucket block. Wow. Have you seen with your own eyes how rock and roll is destroying the youth of our nation? Disgusting. Revolting. Disgusting. Revolting. All those in favor say I carry. I read a few reviews of this movie by people that loved it. I mean, everybody knows the movie is terrible. And this one summed it up pretty well. So, quote, in the 1950s, several Hollywood movie studios hastily cobbled together footage of early rock and roll performers mixed in inane subplots involving courageous disc jockeys sticking their necks out, budding teenage romances, and square grown-ups trying to spoil all the fun, and voila, they had a movie. (laughs) Great. Shake, Rattle, and Roll also had Fats Domino, who was in it and did most of the soundtrack. So something a little different. That movie paired with Hot Rod Girl, which is a teen action movie about drag racing, and you've got your first teen exploitation double bill. Nice. That was followed up with Drag Strip Girl and I Was a Teenage Werewolf, both from 1957, and then Reform School Girl and another rock musical, Rock Around the World. <laughs> They're really just staring into that it's, whole thing. It's bad. Yeah. Those are both from 1957. They made Motorcycle Gang, Sorority Girl, I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, The Cool and the Crazy, which features marijuana. Oh, wow. Drag Strip Riot, High School Hellcats, Hot Rod Gang, Teenage Caveman, Road Racers, and Daddy-O. Daddy-O <laughs> was actually coined by Blackboard Jungle. Oh, wow. As the 1950s came to an end, so did a lot of this greaser, slicked-back hair and switchblade style and gave way to the early 60s, and that, of course, was mod culture, very different. Mm-hmm. So while AIP shtick was pretty washed up by the early 60s, it was quickly revived again by Annette Funicello with the Beach Party movies, <laughs> starting in 1963. Beach Party, for the most uproariously uninhibited unveiling of today's pagan rites. Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello, two youngsters in love you'll love. You know, the only thing I've studied this semester is you. Well, I hope you don't flunk. 
there's an irresistible surge of that urge to romantically merge. Ah, it's wild and wonderful when 10,000 kids beat on 5,000 beach blankets. Hey, wall-to-wall -wall girls. Laughing, loving, living it up. Vacation is here, beach party tonight. Beach Party is the first of seven beach party films from AIP aimed at a teen audience that was much different than the danger of being a juvenile delinquent. We're in the 60s now, so... These films were totally exploitation, but instead were good, clean fun at the beach with pretty tame Mickey Mouse Club stars, but they had something that the 1950s films didn't have. What was that? Boobs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Specifically, Annette Funicello's boobs. And while Annette's huge boobs were shielded in a pretty dowdy bikini, even for 1963, these movies, all seven of them, were a completely unique idea that AIP came up with. So you have to give them some credit here. They're great at knockoffs, but they actually invented a few genres or at least some micro genres themselves. Okay. Beach Party movies took us through most of the 60s, and that was pretty much the end of the juvenile delinquent teenage monster bikini era of teen exploitation. And that's where this particular genre ended. It started with switchblades and drag racing and ended with Annette Funicello in a conservative bathing suit. The truth is that by the mid 60s, with the Vietnam War, violence and aggression were totally not hip, man. <laughs> The war was the establishment, and the only way to rebel was to be all about peace. And so teenagers turned from greasers into hippies, and that was that. Yeah. But this episode would be pretty short if we didn't talk about where the American teenager turned once the war came to an end, and of course, hippies became lame too. Right. There was really one movie in the 70s that revived teen exploitation in a much different genre the teen slasher. So, Psycho is universally believed to be the first actual mainstream slasher. It's kind of debatable, as we talked about in our episode on Michael and Roberta Finlay. But some would also say that Peeping Tom, released in the same year, may be a better example. But for today's purposes, these are both fine. Okay. After Psycho made major money at the box office, everyone tried to jump into the slasher horror game, most notably William Castle with Homicidal and Straightjacket. Mm -hmm. Francis Ford Coppola's debut, Dementia 13 from 1963, Peter Cushing and Corruption, and an entire catalog of films from Hammer, including The Nanny with Betty Davis and Fanatic with Tallulah Bankhead. But these were all adult horror slashers with mostly aging adult stars and while teenagers made up a huge portion of the audience it would be another few years until a few indie horror movies would make teenagers the subjects and usually victims of the slasher genre the first major movie i think to do this was wes craven's last house on the left from 1972 and it was pretty major yeah We've talked about it a few times, so I'll sum it up quickly. Last House on the Left is about two teenage girls that try to buy weed, but instead get abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered by three crazed psychopaths. What ended up being a little different than a lot of the teen slashers after this is that the parents of one of the girls end up finding out and in return torture and murder the killers right back, ultimately making them the slashers as well. This movie was trashed by the critics at the time. It's actually received some more positive reviews in retrospect, but what I found interesting was how similar the reactions were to the rock and roll juvenile delinquency movies of movies like Blackboard Jungle. A bunch of angry citizens tried to get the movie pulled from the Paris Theater in Massachusetts with similar fears that teens or anyone really would see the movie and mimic it. The theater replied, 
quote, after carefully considering all the circumstances, management has decided to continue to show the movie. This difficult decision was predicated on the following considerations. The film relates to a problem that practically every teenage girl and parent can identify with, yet does not pander to the subject matter. The story does not glorify violence, nor does it glorify the degenerates who perpetrate the violence. We feel the movie is morally redeeming and does deliver an important social message. I doubt any of that <laughs> is actually true. I think Last House on the Left is probably one of the most exploitation-y exploitation films of all time. But yeah. of course, I don't believe in, in banning any movie. So yeah. Yeah, I don't I mean, care yeah. whether it's morally redeeming or not. I think right. it's fine. It can so. be absolute trash and morally or whatever. And I don't care. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Yeah, same. Just two years later came the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it surprisingly wasn't met with the same disgust and rejection as The Last House on the Left. The simple premise, which nobody ever remembers, is a bunch of teenagers take a road trip into Texas to visit a graveyard to see if their relatives' bodies were disturbed during a grave robbery. They pick up a male hitchhiker who ends up cutting one of the teens with a knife, stop at a gas station where the owner tells them there is no gas, so they stumble into a house where they encounter both the hitchhiker, the gas station owner, and of course Leatherface, the guy who ends up killing most of them. The reason why I say all this is there's a scene towards the end where the last girl, Sally, is forced to sit at the table with the whole family in a grisly, fucked-up family dinner. Mm-hmm. Film critic Kim Newman said that this scene parodies a typical American sitcom family. The gas station owner is the breadwinning father figure. The killer Leatherface is depicted as a bourgeois housewife. And of course, the hitchhiker acts as the rebellious teenager. You look like you got something to say. So it's funny she used the terms sitcom family because the sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which came out a number of years later, also directed by Toby Hooper, steers into comedy, into yeah. broad comedy. So it's, it's kind of funny that she could see that in the first movie and the second one is basically all about that. And if you remember, the poster... Is is set up to mimic the Breakfast Club's That's poster. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And an interesting choice for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 to kind of be a comedy. <laughs> yeah. Not my favorite, but it was definitely different. Uh, definitely different. <laughs> I mean, if you want to see... Dennis Hopper wielding two chainsaws. That's your film. Yeah. It's important to mention that teen slashers are in a weird gray area of teen exploitation. Technically, both The Last House on the Left and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre are movies about teens being the target of sadistic killers. But unlike any of the previous films we talked about, you could swap out the teens in either movie and replace them with adults, and it wouldn't make a huge difference. You can't replace James Dean or Annette Funicello with an adult in Rebel Without a Cause or Beach Party. It just wouldn't make any sense. Right. But the next wave of slashers in the late 70s and 80s were all about teens, and specifically teens in scenarios where adults were not present to help them, or even worse, didn't believe them that the killer was on the loose because they were just a dumb teenager. Mm -hmm. I think we all know what slashers I'm talking about here. They took on specific holidays like Black Christmas from 1974, Halloween in 1978 featuring famous Last Girl and now Oscar winner Jamie Lee Curtis, and Friday the 13th from 1980. They also took on popular teen events like Prom Night from 1980, The Slumber Party Massacre from 1982, and of course, Sleepaway Camp from 1983. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love teen slashers, but most of these are pretty basic teen exploitation formula. It wasn't until A Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984 that Wes Craven yet again changed the game for a second time with a new formula. 
The teen slashers prior to Freddy Krueger were all crazy human male killers. Even Angela from Sleepaway Camp was a male killer. <laughs> Wes Craven introduced the supernatural aspect to the genre with Freddy coming back to avenge his death and torture teenagers through their dreams, which would end up killing them in real life. Fast forward 12 years and he did it a third time with Scream, ultimately making a mockery of the genre and scaring the shit out of millions of people, including me. Yep. The Scream franchise is still going. Another shitty sequel came out last year. Speaking of shitty sequels, the wave of remakes and knockoffs of Last House on the Left, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Prom Night in the early 2000s are so similar to American International Pictures following the initial teensploitation craze of the 1950s that I had to mention it. I haven't watched any of these shitty remakes since they came out, but my guess is they're pretty unwatchable now, especially considering, in my opinion, they were just an attempt at a teen cash grab to begin with. Just basic name recognition. Yeah. Some Gen Xers heard of Prom Night, so let's remake that shit. You know, it's stupid. Okay, let's talk about sex. (laughs) Great. Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. I originally planned this section to be about sex comedies, kind of like, you know, Private School from 1983 and American Pie from 1999. But after a little digging, I realized these aren't really exploitation films in the way that I set up the opening. Sure, they take advantage of teens and their private parts and the fact that their parents don't generally want their kids to have sex. But these comedies are pretty harmless. Yeah. It's the combination of sex and something else like corruption or adultery or thuggery. (laughs) Or murder or porn or drugs that makes parents freak out. And so we're going to talk about all those. Oh, I'm excited for that. Here's a deep cut. Drew Barrymore and Poison Ivy from 1992. Remember that one? Yes. And I saw it, I'm sure. And it was... Have you watched it since for this? No, no. Oh, man. Because I'm sure that's one that holds up great. Oh, I bet. (laughs) My name's Sylvie Cooper. Like most 15-year-olds, what Sylvie Cooper wanted more than anything else was a best friend. Everybody hates me. Oh, everybody hates me, too. Do you want to come over? Someone to talk to. Wow, this is great. Someone to understand her. Oh, Ivy, this is my mom, Georgie. Till death. Someone like Ivy. It's nice and cool in here. Um, I missed my ride. No. Dad, she's my best friend. But Ivy didn't just want a friend. Ivy wanted more. I hope that when I die, I'll have owned a sports car. Had a family. A home. And she'd do anything to get it. Hello, Mr. Cooper. Care for anything? Get out. What the hell are you doing in my mom's car? Won't ever happen again. Please, stop! Babe, I don't want to hear you say Are you accusing me of something? Why did you do something? No, Fred, come here. No, Fred, come here. <laughs> together now we can all be a family 
Drew Barrymore was actually 17 when this movie came out, and she basically played an underprivileged teenager who seduces her way into a more affluent family by killing the mom, having sex with the father, and trying to steal the identity of the daughter. Things escalated, and Kevin Bacon, Nev Campbell, Denise Richards, and Matt Dillon gave us wild things in 1998 (laughs) involving teens and weird sex and money and murder plots with their much older male teachers and police and played off of the underage sex and lesbian tones a la Poison Ivy, but I doubt any parent was scared that their daughter would do any of this. But then kids came out in 1995 and scared the shit out of everybody. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Kids centers around some New York City teenagers that have sex with virgins, shoplift, do drugs, beat up strangers, steal money from their parents, and worst of all, unknowingly spread AIDS to each other. Kids also presents itself as cinema verite or documentary film, which only scared people even more because, of course, they thought it was real. Right. Some critics gave it good reviews, which it deserved, Mm -hmm. and some gave it bad reviews, which it deserved. Yeah, true. (laughs) But everyone could agree on one thing. It was something no one had ever seen at the cinema, and it was a bit terrifying. Yeah. Roger Ebert said, Kids is the kind of movie that needs to be talked about afterward. It doesn't tell us what it means. Sure, it has a message involving safe sex, but safe sex is not going to civilize these kids, make them into curious, capable citizens. What you realize, thinking about Telly, is that life has given him nothing that interests him except for sex, drugs, and skateboards. His life is a kind of hell, briefly interrupted by orgasms. I feel like I'm being targeted here. Yeah, did that trigger you? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. If you're looking for kids with even more graphic sex, I would recommend the movie Bang Gang. (laughs) It's kind of a French based on a truish story about a small town in France and the teens that started having sex parties, filming them and charging people online to watch. This is obviously in the early days of the internet. Mm -hmm. If you like that, plus actual penetration and some people actually die, I would recommend the Belgian Dutch film We from 2018, which takes elements for both kids and Bang Gang and turns it up to 20. I own this movie. I couldn't even finish it. Oh, really? It was, it's such trash. <laughs> like, it's really bad. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about drugs, specifically teen drug films. There's obviously drugs and wild things in kids, but there's a few movies where cautionary tales of drug use border on exploitation. The first one I want to talk about is 13, starring Holly Hunter and Evan Rachel Wood. This movie came out in 2013. You remember this one? Mm-hmm. Rough plot. It's kind of based on a true story as well. Evan Rachel Wood is being ignored by her mother and the kids at her school think she's super lame, so she decides to steal and dress provocative and do drugs to be cool. Everyone that has ever known a teen knows that this is a solid plan for being cool. And the drugs they do are not fentanyl or anything. It's mostly weed and acid and, you know, huffing household chemicals. But it is a bit of a slippery slope to show a teenager using drugs to look cool. And knowing that any teen that watches that probably agrees that the teen is cooler now that they're doing drugs because drugs, you know, are kind of cool. I would also like to add that smoking is cool. Oh, yes. Yeah. So 13 had some controversy around that for potentially being, you know, kind of an exploitation-y type treatment. Certainly. Yeah. But on the flip side, you have the teen drug storyline of a movie like Traffic from 2000, which kind of swings the other way. So Traffic is basically three interlocking stories about drugs. But for today's purposes, we're talking about Michael Douglas, a conservative judge who basically prosecutes drug users and doesn't realize his own daughter is a drug addict. Do you remember this one? I do. Yeah. This movie got great reviews. It won Best Director at the Oscars. But everybody under the age of 30 probably let out at least a couple of groans during some of the cringier moments. I saw this 
maybe one time in the theater, but I remember it so well because it's basically kind of like this teenage daughter. She like smokes pot one time and is like a meth whore the second later. <laughs> yeah. Like She's selling ass for meth. <laughs> like the next scene. Yeah, yeah. It really, it really goes from zero to a hundred in a, a second. So while something like 13 could be said to over glamorize teen drug use, something like traffic could be said to make it so over the top and unrealistic that it's also exploiting the adults in the audience. It's also jabbing them in the side, being like, do you know where your kids are right now? Are they drug addicts? You know? Yeah. I, I think Traffic also was based off of a like a foreign TV s- series. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a TV series. So maybe in the series, the progression of the <laughs> daughter from you know smoking weed to being a full-on crack whore probably had some room to breathe to, instead yeah, of being exactly. like two minutes later. Right. Well, this movie, movie is th- Traffic is a three hours long, so yeah. they could have given it at least, I don't know, four additional <laughs> minutes to Fair give enough. her a little bit of time to turn into the meth whore. Yeah. But yeah. For the record, these are both great films, in my opinion, but at the end of Traffic, do you remember this? Michael Douglas is like sitting in the AA meeting with his daughter, and he says... And I'm here to listen. And it's <laughs> so cringy. I remember every millisecond of that because I just was sitting in the... I watched this movie by myself mm-hmm. in the theater and I remember everything about being like, it's really, really painful. I must have just shut that out because yeah. I don't remember that at oh, all, which is probably It was, it was painful. Yeah, painful. it sounds like it. Ugh. A little different than teen slashers and way different than teen sex or drug films are teen murder movies where a group of teens murder someone, usually another teen, on purpose. It's not really a genre. It's not even really a subgenre. These films are all heavy dramas, not black comedies like Jawbreaker or Heathers, you know, where teens die and kill each other. Right. You might disagree that these are teen exploitation movies, and we can chat about it, but the first Rivers Edge from 1988, I had never seen this movie. Oh, you hadn't? No, I watched it. Yeah. Crispin Glover and Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Reeves' first film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's actually a dramatized version of a true story where a teenage boy raped and killed his girlfriend for seemingly no reason and left her body out in the open. He then brags about it to his friends at school and even shows them the dead body and nobody reports it for days. So this is a true story which happens in California in the early 80s and kind of had a similar lack of inspiration for that matter as Rebel Without a Cause, which as the title suggests, there's really no reason why the teenage generation acts the way they do. Also, one of the reasons this actual murder and subsequent film a few years later really terrified parents. If a rapist and murderer can't explain why he raped and killed his girlfriend and none of his teenage friends can explain why they didn't go to the police, then what hope can we have for reasoning with teenagers when they're being weird mm, fair speaking of weird heavenly creatures from 1994 <laughs> is also inspired by a true story about two best friends this time girls that kill one of their moms because she doesn't think that their weird lesbianish relationship is normal and wants to separate them permanently this is one of the first movies we bonded over in <laughs> 1995 when we met and i haven't seen it in a long time but I, I watched a few clips and it seems like it holds up pretty well including the special effects which at the time were crazy yeah. and still seem pretty cool i also haven't seen it in a while and i was going to ask you mm-hmm. if it if it held up but i i really liked it when it came out maybe we should watch that one again yeah we should yeah I doubt this movie falls into the category of where parents would be terrified that this could happen to their daughters, but I was pretty sure there was a legit name for the fear that your kid would kill you, but when I googled this, it doesn't really seem to be a thing. 
if anyone knows more about this, please let us know. But it's also featured in Natural Born Killers, where yeah. what's her name kills what's his name? <laughs> yeah, I remember. Hold on, where Rodney Dangerfield is the father and Juliet Lewis, uh, Lewis kills him. Okay, yeah. sorry, my brain's not quite working yet. And I think the opening of Midsummer as well. Remember that the brother kills the parents in the opening of Midsummer. I don't remember if he was a teenager or not. I thought it was sister, but it doesn't matter. It was yeah, the sibling on the main character like kills the parents right. and commit suicide. Yeah. This is obviously different than kids that kill because we're talking about teenagers, but right. you know, this is a, a <laughs> very small thing in film of where teenagers kill their parents. Yeah. But speaking of scary teenage things, I've been dying to talk about this movie and this movie has given me more nightmares than any other movie in the history of movies. Any guesses of what this movie would be? It's Bully from 2001, which I bet all of 10 people have seen this movie or even heard of it. And it has just had such an effect on me. It's a fucked up movie. It's really fucked up. I don't understand what the hell is going on with you. You guys don't work. You don't go to school. You don't do anything. All you do is lay around and drive your cars. You know how that makes me feel? Mad. Bobby and I have been friends since we were, like, almost born. Raped Alec treats everyone like shit. So what are you gonna do, Lisa? He's the source of everybody's troubles. Are we really gonna do this? This guy deserves to die. Turn those goddamn lights up! Is he dead yet? getting there mom what if you witnessed a crime like a murder what are you kids up to ali you killed bobby you murdered bobby kent i wouldn't even say they murdered him i mean he was fighting back so bully is teensploitation at its finest it's a true story about a South Florida trashy teens that, after enduring years of physical and emotional abuse from a classmate and friend, decide to kill him. But most of this movie is kind of like a will they or won't they, and then they they do. They yeah. kill him. But even though this could be and is an episode of Forensic Files, the Larry Clark version of this story is so packed full of teenage sex, teenage nudity, teenage drug use, and most of all, teenage stupidity. Literally every Larry Clark movie. It is the quintessential teensploitation film that we talk about today. Yeah. So it's basically a true cautionary tale packed full of exploitation gimmicks. I love this movie, even though it's probably not a very good one. So I gotta ask what about it gave you nightmares. So I watched this movie in 2001 and that night I had a dream that I accidentally killed someone and now I'm trying to figure out what to do in my dream do I turn myself in do I bury the body do I move to Mexico do I put all my stuff in storage and uh, go on the road with my gay dog I don't know But I've had that dream probably five times a year ever since I saw the movie. And that was in 2001. So that's 22 years of nightmares. And it's always, it's not about the movie. It's that I've accidentally killed someone. And now I'm trying to figure out what to do, which is basically what they do. They killed him. I don't think any of them thought that they were actually going to kill him when they went out there. But then they kill him. And then they all panic. And this is in real life and in the movie. They all panic and they all try to figure out what to do next until somebody basically confesses. Right. 
And that's the nightmare that I have. That's crazy. Five times a year. It's crazy. So I have to confess something, too. Not necessarily a murder dream, but I've had a recurring dream off and on of committing some sort of crime mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And then now I'm the same thing. I'm like, what the yeah. fuck do I do? In all the cases, I, I go on the run. I'm not prepared for this. I'm in the dream and sure. rationally thinking, that is I'm the not right. prepared for yeah. this. I don't know what to do. Why the fuck did I commit this crime? And I'm like going through the, all this, like you probably are, when you have your dream, the stressors of it. And then when you wait, finally wake up, and you take a second to realize it's not real, and you're like, thank God. Oh, thank God I didn't kill somebody. Yeah. Well, the truth is, is that the correct thing to do if you kill someone is to go on the run. I mean, there's no... <laughs> I mean, right. What's the, you've already killed someone. You just turn yourself in. You're probably going to get caught. You might as well give it a shot. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's fair. In the dream, you are doing the right thing <laughs> yeah. by going on the run. But yeah. I'm poorly prepared to do that. Well, absolutely. And so. that's why most people get caught. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. So that's where I'm leaving this. You've got a genre of film that started off pretty highbrow and then got knocked off to death by cheap imitations looking for a buck up through the mid-60s. And you could even argue Blackboard Jungle and Rebel Without a Cause were designed to scare adults into buying tickets to see what their dangerous teenage kids were up to. These films actually also captured something that was already in the air at the time. They didn't invent it. They didn't invent teenage drama. That was already there. These films were just about that. But it was actually the cheap ripoffs of these movies that were made for teenagers, about teenagers, that captured the American teen at its best. Yeah. Confused, emotional, stuck between being a kid and an adult. No one understands them. So why not dance to rock and roll music? Yeah. <laughs> and you can see all of these trends in any modern portrayal of teenage life, whether in a show like Euphoria or a movie like Scream. Capturing anything in a teenager's life on screen is going to involve at least a little teen exploitation to make it worth watching. Yeah, totally agree. That's my episode. What do you think? It's great, but I have uh, three alibis here. Um, I'm ready, I'm ready. Right, so the first one, Larry Clark, who directed Bully, your nightmare-inducing movie, also directed Kids. Yeah. And a bunch of other movies where literally all underage-looking kids... Or having explicit sex and doing drugs. Marfa Girl. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of a creepy kind of filmmaker in that regard. I like him. But two movies that I was surprised to talk about. Nice companion piece to Poison Ivy is Fear, starring Marky Mark in his first movie where he's like the gaslighting asshole boyfriend. And And what's her name, too? Reese Witherspoon's in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So that, that whole movie where he's pretty awful in it. Yeah. So then there's that. Yep. But then the one movie I was waiting for you to bring up and you didn't, Gummo. Gummo, yeah. First of all, go watch it because it's fucked up. Second, it's the directorial debut of Harmony Corinne, who was the writer for Kids. That's right. And it's also about kids, but these kids are like white trash kids that live in Xenia, Ohio. Xenia? Xenia? Something Mm Xenia, Ohio. And they huff paint and they kill cats to sell to the Chinese restaurant. And it's just, it's a fucked up movie. Yeah. There's no plot of that movie. It's just kids being white trash essentially right so anyway i had to bring that up yeah that's definitely that whole a era movie. of larry clark and harmony kareen and just like <laughs> weird teenagers being awful and just fucking their brains out is one of my favorite uh favorite eras of film yeah i couldn't I agree more yeah. yeah no but anyway, that's all I had to, to add to this. This is a great episode. Yeah, it was a fun one. I actually read an entire book about this, uh-huh. um, which was called Teenagers and Teen Picks, The Juvenilization of American Movies in the 50s. Kind of like more like a textbook, but it was super, super interesting. It was also the thing that I realized that I did not have an entire episode by just talking about these movies <laughs> in the 50s, because how much can you talk about I was a teenage werewolf? Yeah, true. 
it was definitely something that I had toyed around with in Beach Party Massacre, and I had teen exploitation on my topics list since we started this podcast. Yeah, so yeah. glad I finally finally got to it. So. Yeah, definitely, it's great. Yep. So anyway, that's it. We'll see you next week. All right, thanks, thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today. And also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter where we share a lot of additional content. And if you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. There's this bug that stings people right there. Oh. Kill. Uh, I'm going to kill it. It's, I'm going to kill, kill it because it, it's going to sting me. It's an ant, but... <laughs> Damn. That was a pretty tough ant. Maybe it's mant. Mant. <clears throat> All right.